Well, let me open in prayer, and then we'll give attention to God's Word. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace to us in Christ. Thank you to your love for us, that you've given us your Word, that we might grow in our love for you and our knowledge of you. And we pray that by your Spirit, you may be at work in our hearts, opening our eyes to understand in deeper ways the truths that are in your Word, that we might more and more bring honor and glory to your name, the name of Christ. Amen. Well, this morning I want to be uh, looking at the last major section in the book of Ephesians. And this section uh, is a section that really draws together many of the themes that the Apostle Paul addresses in the book of Ephesians. Or to say it another way, Paul concludes his letter to the Ephesians in such a way that points to the pastoral strategy that he has in writing this letter to the saints. So before I read the passage, what I'd like to do is briefly look at a few of those themes that we see throughout the book of Ephesians. And in doing so, I I hope it will enrich the reading of Ephesians 6 that we'll uh, look at in a few moments and help you see what Paul is doing in this passage. Paul, in this passage, beginning in verse 10 of chapter 6, is not picking up a new theme and and thinks, you know what? You know, let me talk about spiritual armor for a moment. He's, he's not picking up a new theme, but he's using this picture of spiritual armor to bring a conclusion to the book, and it's conclusion which draws together those themes that have been his concern. So the, the two themes I want to briefly trace are firstly, the reality of the unseen heavenly realm, and then secondly, the absolute effectiveness of God's infinite power. So God's power is at work and the reality of the unseen spiritual realm. And there's one other thing I I want to bring to your attention before we, we look at this, and that is, of all the books that Paul has written, the book of Ephesians spends the most time talking about the evil powers in the heavenly realms. And as we look at the book of Acts, we ought not to be surprised by that because Luke draws particular attention to some of the issues at work in the city of Ephesus. The saints who made up the first believers in the church in Ephesus were acutely aware of the evil forces in the unseen realms. In Acts 19, verse 18, we read, Many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts, that is, their esteem in the culture and the way they made money was was by contacting and engaging with the evil forces of the unseen realms. They brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver, which is about a million dollars. Think of that, a million dollars worth of books. That gives you an idea of the value that the culture placed on these um, magic arts. So these are the people who made up the church in Ephesus. They are acutely aware of the evil forces 
And Paul is particularly wanting to address those concerns as he seeks to encourage the saints in Ephesus. So with that in the back of your mind, just turn a few pages to Ephesians 1 and look at how Paul begins. He begins the letter to the saints with praise to God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. These are not potential spiritual blessings. These are present reality spiritual blessings, and they're the spiritual blessings that have to do with the heavenly places, the unseen spiritual reality. Well, then Paul in chapter 1 then goes on to reflect on God's work of salvation in Christ. This reveals God's glory. It takes God's eternal glorious power to save sinners. And that's on display. Then we see in verse 15, Paul transitions to pray for the saints. And he prays that their eyes would be enlightened, the eyes of their hearts. That is, he prays that they would have spiritual eyes to see spiritual truths, things that you can't quantify with physical eyes. You can't get a measuring tape. You can't put it under a microscope. But these are no less real. And so Paul is burdened that the saints would perceive these glorious spiritual realities. And he prays for three things. One, he emphasizes the third thing, and that is in verse 19. And that they would also perceive what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. Here's Paul's concern that the saints would have this vision to see. Paul then illustrates the immensity of God's power. It's so great that God's power raised Christ from the dead, seated him at his right hand in glory, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Those words, rule, authority, power and dominion, they have to do with demonic beings. Christ has been raised far above those demonic powers in the unseen realms. Paul goes on in verse 5 of chapter 2. He again demonstrates God's power at work in raising spiritually dead people to life. God has made them alive together with Christ and raised them up with him and seated him. Where? In the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Paul then points in chapter 3 to the reconciling power of God in bringing Jew and Gentile together and them both together before God in Christ. And so, chapter 3, verse 10, it is through the establishment of the church that the manifold wisdom of God is made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Then in verse 16, Paul prays that God would grant the saints to be strengthened with power through his spirit in their inner being. And then just jumping forward to chapter 4, verse 27, Paul indicates that when we indulge in sin, it gives an opportunity or an advantage to the devil. So just 
a few snippets um, through the book of Ephesians that I want you to have in the back of your mind as we come now to read Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. And, and let me put a footnote. I hope this week you might go back in light of this morning's sermon and read carefully through the book of Ephesians and, and trace those themes together and see how Paul develops them and, and see how this section is a fitting and beautiful conclusion to the book of Ephesians. So Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10, let me read. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So as we look at this section, I want to break it down into, into three parts. Firstly, we're commanded to be strengthened. We'll look at that in verses 10 through 13. Then we are provided with the means of being strengthened, verses 14 through 17. And then finally, we are instructed to make prayer pervasive, verses 18 through 20. So let's look at the first section, verses 10 through 13. We are commanded to be strengthened. It's interesting that Paul does not begin the letter with this command to stand strong against the intimidating spiritual forces of evil. He leaves it to the end. And I want you to hear what he does through the book. Rather, he begins the book and he's praying that the saints would increase in their understanding of God's power. Then he reminds them of the greatness of God's power in pointing their thoughts to the fact that God raised Christ from the dead and that they are seated with Christ in the heavenly places, far above all spiritual forces. Then he prays that they would be strengthened with power. Now, in light of all that, he gets to the end of the book. Now, at the conclusion, Paul says to the saints, be strong. Now, we hear this command to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. The command follows all this truth that makes the obedience possible. How can you obey the command? You can obey the command because of who God is 
and of what he has done and his faithfulness to answer prayer, in light of all that, be strong. The emphasis here is not so much make yourself strong as be strengthened. That is, receive the strength and the power of God. Now, that makes sense in light of all that Paul has said throughout the book of Ephesians. Oh, I understand now. The immensity of God's power, all that he's done in Christ, live in light of that spiritual reality. Live in light of who Christ is and his wonder and power and goodness. Stand in his strength. And what's also interesting here in verse 10 is there's a linkage in the words that Paul uses in verse 10 with what Paul says in chapter 1, verse 19. Great might, strength of his might. These words link back to words that Paul has used way back in the beginning of the letter. So how do we fulfill this command? How do we fulfill the command to receive, to be strengthened with God's power? How do we receive something? Well, Paul elaborates in verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God. The way we are strengthened with God's power is to put on the armor of God. We're to clothe ourselves with the armor that God provides. So this clothing of ourselves with the armor of God is is a receiving. It's something that we do through faith. But before Paul gets into more detail about putting on the armor, he gives more reasoning for the command. And we see that in the second part of verse 11. That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Why is spiritual armor so critical? Because the enemy is so strong. So I just want to pause for a moment here. In and of yourself, you are dead meat before the spiritual forces of evil. Our power does not match the power of evil spiritual forces. But the power of evil spiritual forces does not match the power of God. And we are to be clothed in His power. And that's where our hope is. So we're to stand firm with hope and with joy. We're to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. The devil here, I think, is representative of all the spiritual forces of evil. The devil and all those under his authority and control. The devil has schemes. He has strategies, plans to oppose God and the followers of God. We could spend, uh, you know, uh, sermons on this, but let me just quickly draw together a few of the schemes of the devil. This will be going fast, but I'm I'm just want to give some thoughts here. 
The, firstly, the devil cunningly deceives and creates doubt about God's word. He lies about God. Think of the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, or 2 Corinthians 11, 3 and 15. The devil can be at work behind horrible events in this world. Events used to try to destroy faith. Think of Job 1 and 2. The devil can afflict people with physical illness. Think of the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 12. The devil uses God's word. I think this is maybe his most cunning scheme. He uses God's word to induce people to act against God's will. Think of Jesus' desert temptations in Matthew 4. And also, as we looked at briefly, the devil exploits our sinful tendencies and he takes advantages of us, takes advantage of us when we persist in indulging sin. Ephesians 4:27, Acts 5 and 3. So just a few of the schemes and the strategies of the devil. So we need the armor because the, the devil is so scheming in his work. But we need his armor because we realize that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We are flesh and blood. This is flesh and blood here today. We can see each other. We can reach out and shake, hug, hear each other's voices. This is real, but this is not all the reality that's here. And, and if we are so focused on this that we are not aware of spiritual reality, then we are in trouble. We must be aware of the forms of spiritual opposition. The struggle is not a struggle that is in this physical realm, but it is a struggle in the realm of the heavenly places. We might say the non-physical reality of our existence. And I, I use that term carefully. It's non-physical. It is real. It has to do with our existence. This is, it's not like it's separate from our existence, somehow detached from your life. It's non-physical, real, having to do with your present life, your present existence. So if we are to stand before this non-physical opposition, then we must be armored with non-physical armor that's powerful enough to withstand, to resist these spiritual forces of evil. Let me pause for a moment and ask you some questions. Firstly. Are you thoughtful about the devil's power and strategies? Are you so focused on the burdens and pleasures of this physical world that you're not attuned to non-physical reality? Do you realize you have an enemy who wants to do you great harm? And maybe finally... Are you thoughtful about how the devil 
can take advantage of your sin to attack others who are part of the church. As I've been thinking about this passage and praying for you, maybe this is the part I'm, I want to camp on for just a moment. The devil is scheming. He is wise. He takes advantage. And as we go through seasons in the life of the church, different seasons give different opportunities for Satan's attack. And I think that maybe you as a church are at a particularly vulnerable place in this time of transition. And I want you to be thoughtful as saints here that you would be people clothed in the armor of Christ, that you might be living life as individuals and life in this church in such a way that the devil might not be able to take advantage of this time of transition in this church, that there would not be disunity or other things that you can't even perceive. May you be particularly prayerful about that. And that this would be a time of strength, of growth, of experiencing God's power in your church. And, and as I think about, I was, I was thinking this week, just thinking of how God has worked in the life of this church. And thinking, what will he continue to do? And that you as a group of believers would be looking to him for growth, for strength, for grace. For one thing is for certain, the devil is scheming to attack churches, and I think particularly vulnerable churches, or churches in a vulnerable position. It's my prayer that you as a group of saints would be well strengthened in the power of Christ. Well, in verse 13, Paul repeats his command. Therefore, take up the whole armor of of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Just three observations here. Firstly, stand. Paul repeats this word, stand, stand. The emphasis here is on standing. Standing in the face of spiritual opposition. This, this kind of reflects something of of, of, of being able to resist, of being robust, of enduring. You're, you're enduring attack. You're not succumbing to the devil's strategies. There's a standing and enduring. But then Paul has this interesting term, on that evil day or on the evil day. It seems best, I think, here to understand that spiritual force, the spiritual forces of evil are not consistent in their attack. There's an ebb and flow in the intensity or the focus of the devil and his minions. In Luke 4.13, we see this. Now, when the devil had ended every temptation, this is at the end of Jesus' desert temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time 
There is a period of intense temptation. Satan withdraws. But he's watching and waiting. So I think there's an ebb and flow. And that brings me to my third point as I look at this verse. That is, we don't hang up the armor of God. The devil doesn't send us a telegram or a text message and say, just want you to let you know, two days time, I'm turning up. Just want to give you some time to prepare, get spiritually engaged. Doesn't do that, does he? No, and so the idea here that Paul is giving us, we are to be living, clothed in the armor of Christ. We can't see the future. We don't know the evil day when it will come. But when it does, because we are clothed in the armor of Christ, we are ready to stand in the power that is ours because of Christ. Ready to, ready to withstand on that evil day. In fact, that is what one of the devil's schemes is. He, he's waiting when we are actually spiritually vulnerable because we're not spiritually engaged, living by faith, clothing ourselves in the life and the power of Christ. So I wonder right now, how vulnerable are you to Satan's strategies? To what extent are you walking according to the flesh or walking in the power of the Spirit of Christ? To what extent are you clothed with the armor of of God. Well, if it was up to our own resources, we would not be able to withstand in that evil day. But we have the armor that is ours in Christ. We have the armor that is provided by God. So looking now at verse 14, our second section here, we are provided with the means of being strengthened. Verses 14 through 17. The armor. Paul is using this metaphor of armor. Where did Paul get this from? Why is he using this metaphor of armor? Does he use this metaphor in other places? Well, this idea of spiritual armor is that being clothed with Christ or, or, or the results of the Spirit's ministry in life, of uh, the, the, the ministry of the Spirit, that we are experiencing the life of Christ. Paul's focusing here on, as it were, the external enemy. But in other places, we think of um, being living in the Spirit, in the power of the Spirit, having to do with the internal enemy, the, the flesh. And so Paul uses similar terminology here to fighting the external enemy with terminology he will use fighting the internal enemy, the flesh. So I just wanted to go to one or two other passages you can write down briefly, maybe go back to and look at. Um, well, firstly, back in Ephesians 4 and 22, Paul has used similar terminology to putting on Put, um, put off the old self, which is belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self, 
created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So the idea of putting on or clothing ourselves in, in Christ-like clothing is, is not new even in the book of Ephesians. If we go to 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 8, we read, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So here we see Paul again in this context of spiritual vitality, talking in terms of armor. But Paul is drawing this idea of spiritual armor from the Old Testament, where Jesus is described in these ways. I think for the sake of time, I won't go there, but I'll, I'll just give you the references. Isaiah 11, 4 and 5, and Isaiah 59, 17. So Paul is thinking in Old Testament terms. When he's thinking of this idea of armor, he's linking it to being clothed or putting on the character and the glory of Christ. Christ is the glorious, victorious um, military victor. He is the one who has won the battle against spiritual forces. We, we are clothing ourselves, as it were, in His glory, in His character, in His power, in His victory. So we are putting on this armor that is from God, this armor which is ours because of the union that we have with Christ by the Spirit. Again, drawing together themes that you'll see throughout the book of Ephesians. So let's look in detail. That would not be true. We're not going to look in detail because we don't have time. Let's look briefly at the details of the armor. I don't want you to get concerned. I'm looking at the time. I'm like, a, there is so much we could say, but I, I want to just give you a good overview of the passage. So firstly, we're to be clothed with the belt of truth. Paul has spoken about truth throughout the book of Ephesians 1.13. The word of truth, the gospel, 4.15, speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up, 4.21, as the truth is in Jesus. We're, we're to put on the belt of truth. This is the truth to which we are to be renewing our minds. In knowing and believing the truth. We are protecting ourselves against the devil, who is the father of lies, in whom there is no truth. John 8, 44. We're to be clothed with the breastplate of righteousness. Paul addresses the believers as saints, as holy ones. We have been chosen in Christ to be holy and blameless. We've been forgiven of all our trespasses. We are seated with Christ before God. And so we are clothed with this breastplate of righteousness as we, in faith, rest upon and delight in our status in Christ. And so we're protected 
against the attacks of the devil. The devil, that word devil, comes from the Greek word diabolos. Revelation 12.10 would be a place to go. He is the one who attacks us. The accuser. What strength does his accusations have when we are so filled with delight and joy in the righteousness that is ours in Christ? Clothed, protected by the rest that we have in the righteousness that is ours in Christ. But I think there's also a reference here, a reflection here, that has to do with not just our place or our status in Christ, but also a practical element. Paul says back in chapter 4, verse 27, that when we sin, we give advantage to the devil. When we live in light of our status in Christ, clothed in his righteousness, and when we are pursuing practical righteousness in our lives, then the devil has no opportunity. Clothe yourselves in the righteousness that is yours in Christ. Well, moving on in verse 15. And as, the, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. I understand this to be speaking of the readiness that we have to stand in spiritual battle because of the firm confidence that we have in the gospel which brings peace. I think there's some irony here. We are prepared to stand in spiritual battle because we have peace with God. That is, the sense of threat, the sense of upset that there can feel in spiritual battle is not able to offset us, to put us off kilter because our feet have been prepared to stand strong in the peace that we have in Christ. Spiritual battle is real. But the peace we have in Christ is real and is of far greater significance to us. In all circumstances, taking up the shield of faith. Well, here Paul emphasizes the essential element of faith. It is through faith that we experience the powerful protection of God. Now, I think it's true to say that faith is the way we put on the whole armor of God. Here, Paul is particularly drawing attention to the significance of faith. I want you to just go back and look briefly at Ephesians 3 verse 16. Look at the way Paul prays here. Just picking up in the middle of the prayer that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. 
You know, Paul has a habit of mixing metaphors. And, and we see that here in the book of Ephesians and in this passage. So I don't think we should, should think his mention of faith here somehow excludes the importance or relevance of faith in these other elements of the armor. But that here Paul is particularly drawing attention to the element of faith in, in the, the use of this shield which we see in verse 16, can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. That there's a particular element of the schemes of the devil that A, is intense flaming darts or flaming arrows. But as intense as these darts are, the shield of faith is an impenetrable shield. Again, something of the spiritual realities we deal with. Are the dots intense? Are they real? Are they fiery? Are they coming at you? Yes. And, and there's a sense where we feel the temptation to doubt. The shield of faith does not minimize the reality of these darts. I'm going to say the experience of being present when these darts are being fired at us. But being clothed in the armor of Christ and having the shield of faith, we are equipped to stand in the day of battle and to remain standing. We have also the helmet of salvation. We're to put on this salvation. We're to consider the present reality of our salvation. I think along with the steady hope of future salvation, the fierceness of the enemy, the sense of threat, of intimidation, should not dissuade us from the confidence that one day we will enter into our eternal inheritance. The devil would love for us to be hopeless. To think that, the, that it is inevitable we will lose in the battle. He wants to, us to take our eyes off Christ and to put our eyes either on ourselves or the intimidating reality of spiritual forces. Put on the helmet of salvation. Be protected by the hope that we have in Christ, that we've been sealed by his spirit to be the inheritors of this eternal hope. And finally, to take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The word of God is a necessary weapon against the schemes of the devil. We see this during Jesus' desert temptation. He directly quotes scripture to counter the devil's strategies. And we see in this section in Ephesians that Paul also considers the word of God as something that is to be boldly proclaimed. This is part of living before the Lord and living faithfully before him. What is this bold proclama proclamation? I think of, uh, I'm putting some themes together here. But 
the gates of hell cannot prevail against the effectual word of God through which Christ builds his church. Paul is living the reality of what he's talking about here. We are to take the word of the Spirit, which is the word of God. You, you only pick up in a battle what you think is effective. You know, a, a Nerf gun is no power against a knife. A knife really can't do much in the face of a handgun. You'll only wield this sword if you believe the reality of the Word of God. One of the reasons we don't wield this sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, like we should, is because we don't live in light of the spiritual realities like we should. Don't be intimidated by the devil. Pick up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and boldly proclaim the eternal truth of the Creator God who is powerful over all things, who has raised up His Son to sit at the right hand above all evil forces. So often it takes somebody merely scoffing at our confidence in God's word and we get quiet. May we not be like that. May we be a people bold in Christ. Well, in the next verses, Paul moves to speak about prayer. Now, he doesn't link it to a piece of armor, but the way he words this, he is seeing it as closely associated. So he's not moving on to a new topic, but I think rather we might say indicating that prayer is something that is foundational to every aspect of spiritual battle. And so as I look at verses 18 through 20, I see that we are instructed to make prayer pervasive. Look at how Paul uses the word all. Be praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to keep to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplications for all the saints. There's to be a, a constant atmosphere of prayer in our lives, a constant talking with the God, fellowshipping with the Lord, an alertness in all of life, and a wakefulness. We're constantly aware of the spiritual forces of evil that oppose us in the spiritual realm. And with perseverance, we are constant in prayer. We don't know the timing of the devil's schemes. We can't predict his particular approach at one time or another. But be praying not only for yourselves, but for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul has modeled this. Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. He's, he's been 
if you want to know how to pray this way, look at Ephesians 1, 15 through 23, or Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. That is how Paul prays strategically in light of the spiritual opposition. I also see here something that is significant. Being an apostle does not make Paul less vulnerable to the devil's strategies. He says, pray for me also. Don't think I'm an apostle. I don't need as much prayer. Pray for me. Maybe we might say, pray for him more so because maybe he's more of a focus of the devil's strategies to destroy. What does Paul ask particularly? That the saints would be in prayer for him that he might boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Or to say it another way, praying that he might effectively wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So prayer is an essential element. We know that, of course. But it's a reminder of how significant prayer actually is. It's essential for each of us to be strong in the Lord against the attacks of the devil. Where to be praying for one another, that we might be supernaturally strengthened with the power that can only come from God. And because there's this reality of living in light of the heavenly realms, the unseen realms we cannot see, you can't, with, with physical eyes, see, can I say, the economy of prayer. As it were, you can't see where the prayer goes. You, you, you can't see the relationship between my praying and the working of God. You, you can't directly see the relationship between your prayers and what is happening in the unseen realms. And there's a reason for that. God has seen fit that is not helpful nor necessary. But it is nonetheless necessary that we pray. Prayer is to be a vital element of our spiritual strength and vitality in our being strong in the Lord. Well, I'd like to close by looking at the benediction we see at the end of chapter 3. There is an intimidating, powerful spiritual enemy. He is stronger than you. He is smarter than you. He's able to outwit you. But we have a glorious Savior who is more powerful, wiser. And we can have great hope and great confidence in the power that is ours in Christ. Let me read Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And may all God's saints say together, Amen.